Morning, Crosswalk. I was ready for that one that time. Last week it caught me by surprise. It's such a short bumper video, but welcome to Crosswalk. So glad that you're here. Special shout out to anybody who is visiting for the first time. We are glad to have you here. Make sure you stop by and get a welcome bag with all sorts of goodies in it. Uh, but we're glad that you chose to be with us today to trust us with your time. Thank you. Uh, our promise to you is to always make sure that we will never embarrass you and create a warm and friendly and loving environment, a community of belonging. So welcome. I add that on to what Laura already said. And we are excited for Sacramento. They're having their pop-up service as they continue to try to figure out where uh, they might want to find a place uh, to uh, open up as a campus officially. And as she said, Joyce Newmeyer, our leadership team chair, uh, is actually preaching there. And I texted with her this morning to tell her I was praying for her and to good luck. She's often behind the keyboard. And she said she's much more comfortable behind the keyboard than she is on the pulpit. And I said, well, that's an easy fix. Just put the keyboard on the pulpit. It's fine. Nobody's going to be like, hey, move that. So it's fine. We'll see. Anyway, hey, we are in week two of our series called Adventure, um, where we're looking into the Christmas story. We've already had good feedback about this particular sermon series, largely because of our emphasis on risk. Because for far too many the Christmas story has become tame and familiar, and we forget about the danger involved in the Christmas story, the danger of Jesus, the Son of God, coming as a human, the danger of two kingdoms colliding, the danger of a new way of living that would challenge humanity forever. Last week, we talked about how our world is full of risk, and though we try to minimize certain risk, there is no such thing as risk versus no risk scenarios, right? Everything has risk. In my years as a campus chaplain, um, one of the things that I was in charge, I kind of oversaw was our student missions program. Uh, we had another director for it, but I, I helped out with that. And we would send sometimes up to 100 different students around the world to serve as student missionaries for a year. We would send them to places like Guam, Micronesia, and the Ukraine, to uh, uh, Kenya, and Belize, and Honduras, and sometimes even exotic places like Arizona. We would send them all over the place. And, and sometimes we would get a student who would come into the office who would say, I mean, you could tell that they thought they alone could change the world. And they wanted to go to the most difficult, the most remote place in the world to spend their year as a student missionary. And then after a few weeks of actually arriving in that place, they would call us and say, um, can you get me out of here? You know, um, Student missionaries would often come back from their year with two different phrases, they would say. The first phrase they would say is, man, that was the hardest year of my life. And then they would follow that up with, that was the best year of my life. So... Uh, dealing with students going out to serve was one thing. Dealing with their parents was an entirely different story altogether. Because parents like to come in and say, I want to make sure you send my child to a place where there is no danger, no risk, right? They wanted something safe, and how are we going to keep them safe wherever they went? Um, one year, uh, as an example of how this uh, got difficult at times, was we actually had a student that was murdered on the island of Palau. Um, now, uh, that was a horrible tragedy, but to put it in perspective, there had been no foreigner hurt on that island, on any of the islands of Guam, Micronesia. No foreigner had been hurt in over 30 years. 
And so the islands were a relatively safe place in perspective, but because of what happened, there were parents that would call and, and they would say like, well, send them anywhere but the islands. And we'd try to tell them, actually, the islands is one of the safer places to go. And they would push back and say, well, why not somewhere safe? Like, like I don't know, maybe a dormitory dean in England. And I would say, well, I mean, England is second only to United States for crime, so it's not necessarily safe. So, you know, if everything is a risk, um, then the question then becomes, what risks are worth taking, right? As God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit looked to the earth and saw their creation struggling and they heard our cries, they felt like we were worth the risk. So they set out on an adventure that we call the Christmas story. Now, in addition to the countless risk Jesus and his parents would take each day in this world, there was a threat that from any human perspective would seem insurmountable, right? That threat was facing a superpower unlike any the world had seen up to that point, and that superpower's name was Rome. Now, before we jump too far into it, uh, we have to identify the elephant in the room. If you are one of those that check out that app the young people call TikTok, or Reddit, or maybe you watch Saturday Night Live, you know there's a trend of asking, well, how often do you think about the Roman Empire, right? Now, that didn't start from a good place, uh, but now it mostly just means like, you know, I, how often in a day do you think about something obscure or niche? Okay, well, I will tell you this. I have spent a lot of time this week talking about, thinking about the Roman Empire. So brace yourself, Crosswalk, because I'm about to drop some history on you. So for the next little bit, you, don't, you can't call me Pastor Patty. Just call me the professor, all right? That'll put you in the right frame of mind. So as we mentioned last week, the very first prophecies of a Messiah coming for Israel was 700 years before the birth of Christ. As you can imagine, 700 years is a long time to wait, and the Israelites got restless at times, and so there were some revolts during this time against the powers that were oppressing them. And those revolts uh, really came to nothing eventually. And so uh, Rome had been gaining power for two to three hundred years before the time of Christ. Up until 27 BC, Rome was a republic, but thanks to Julius Caesar and his adopted son Octavian, they became the Roman Empire. Now, the Romans loved their titles, though Caesar was simply Julius's family name. Uh, he turned it into the, uh, a title that would uh, signify the divine ruler of Rome. Okay. And after Julius was assassinated, because apparently divine rulers can be killed, um, his adopted son Octavian would carry in his father's footsteps, adopt the title Caesar, but he would add another title to his name, which was Augustus, which meant majestic or worthy of honor. So Rome loved their titles, but, but we do too, right? I mean, I don't know if this is still the case, but do you remember when uh, you know, people that worked at Subway became, um, became sandwich artists, right? Or janitors and custodians uh, became technicians of environmental services. I was one of those for a little while. There were a couple of, um, couple of ones that I found out that I liked. Uh, I wanted to see if you could guess what they are. This is an actual title for a position. Uh, it is a loss prevention officer. Security, that is correct. 
Loss prevention officer is a security clerk. Or, how about this one? Vision clearance engineer. Vision clearance engineer. Window washer. That is correct. Sorry, Ty. Maybe next time. Yeah, so we love our titles. Rome loved their titles. And after Julius Caesar's death, Octavian officially declared Julius divine, which conveniently meant that Augustus Octavian Caesar could now be referred to by yet another title, which was, so, uh, sorry, I'm not advancing my slides. I'm into it. Uh, so he could now be called the son of God, right? Conveniently. Ask anyone in the Roman Empire who the son of God was, and they would tell you Octavian was the son of God. Octavian was responsible for bringing about the Pax Romana, which was a time of peace, but that peace was brought forth by bloodshed and violence. So can you see any potential risks for Jesus to be born in this time, coming as the son of God and the prince of peace? Some risks there. As the Roman Empire grew, Rome appointed regional governors to help keep the peace, administer justice, and collect taxes as well as suppress any unrest. In Judea, that governor was Herod the Great. As Matthew tells us, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. Now, Herod was an Udemian by uh, where he was born, which meant that he likely considered himself half Jew and half Rome, and by his actions, he desperately wanted to be loved by both. He wanted Rome to see him as worthy and honorable and give him more power, and he wanted the Israelites to see him as the Messiah they had been waiting for for so long. But rest assured, Herod was no prince of peace. Herod uh, was initially appointed governor over the region of Galilee by Julius Caesar in 47 BC, but in 39 BC, Octavian appointed Herod king over all Judea. And though Rome saw him as a great soldier, a strong governor, and a near genius architect, he was stern and cruel. Someone once said about him that Herod and humanity were complete strangers. As his power and influence grew, he became more and more paranoid which was shown by his uh, killing of his two sons because he was afraid that they wanted his power for themselves. As the rest of the Jews waited for the true Messiah to arrive, the Jewish leaders, the religious elite, the wealthy, they found a different way to cope with the Russian oppression and occupation. Instead of rebelling, this time they chose to conform and compromise with Rome in order to make themselves a little more comfortable. I'm sure they told themselves that when the Messiah actually came, they would fight back. Um, they would align uh, with them, but in the meantime, they'll line their pockets by giving to Caesar what is Caesar, and once they've met their own needs, they'll give to God whatever is left over. You see this in some of the stories in the Gospels where the widow comes and gives her offering, and she gives all that she has left to live on, whereas the wealthy and the rich give out of their abundance. Right? Or you see this in the rich young ruler who went to Jesus but walked away sad because he had great wealth. So the Jewish elite would come to find out that comfort and wealth are awfully hard things to let go of. The Jews who suffered, who were oppressed, who struggled to make ends meet, they still longed for a Messiah, but after 700 years, it was getting harder to hold on to that hope. 
into this world, travelers from the east arrive in Jerusalem and start asking a dangerous question. They say, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. They had no idea what kind of storm they had walked into. Now, King Herod always believed that a threat would come from the east, which is why he fortified cities on the east to protect him from that day. But these wise men just waltz into his city and start asking for the new king. I mean, who did they think they were, right? Eventually, they're invited into Herod's palace. They're in the city that Herod rebuilt, They're next to the temple that Herod restored, and they walk into the palace while Herod is sitting on his throne wearing his king, wearing his uh, uh, crown, sorry, um, and they asked, where is the newborn king of the Jews? What Herod heard was, there's a new king in town, and you ain't him. Matthew records Herod's reaction and says, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Yeah, deeply disturbed. I mean, Herod was clinically paranoid on a good day, right? Now there were people in his living room saying that a new king had come. So rest assured, Crosswalk, Jesus wasn't just a religious figure. He was political. And I know we don't like to talk about politics. We like to stay out of there. But make no mistake, when you come to a land that already has a king and you're in the middle of an empire with an emperor and you're said to be the new king, it's not just political. It's a revolution. The text goes on and tells us, then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Now, apparently, Herod was a good politician because he was able to act as if this didn't bother him as much as it really bothered him. He put on a good show and played the part but in reality, he wanted to get rid of this threat as much as anything. What's interesting is that Herod actually believed them. He believed that the the, the new king had come, that the prophecy about the Messiah might uh, might just be being fulfilled. What he struggled to believe was that he wasn't it. And we know the rest of the story, right? The wise men find their way to Bethlehem. They find their way to Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, and they worship the newborn king. They give him incredible gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which you might ask yourself, well, what in the world is this young couple gonna do with these gifts? But these gifts would come in awfully handy when you've gotta get money to go on a last-minute trip to Egypt. The Jews refer to this kind of thing as Jehovah Jireh, God provides. But instead of the wise men heading back to Herod, we're told When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. I love that these foreigners are included in the Christmas story because it tells us that this newborn king of the Jews wasn't just for the Jews, he was actually for everyone. And these foreigners would be the one to herald in the news that the Messiah was here. Then, of course, Herod responds horrifically, It tells us Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. 
Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Herod was the opposite of King Jesus in every way. Authors Leonard Sweet and Frank Viola write this about uh, write about this when they say, in Herod, the old king, and in Jesus, the new king, we have the collision of two kingdoms, two kingdoms representing two different powers, uh, two different glories, and two different kinds of peace. The true king of the Jews was born under the nose of the evil king, and for that reason, Jesus entered the world he created with a price tag on his head. And look, we, we come down harsh on Herod, right? but I believe that we all have a little bit of Herod inside of us. I know I do, as much as I hate to admit it. Tim Keller reflects on this in his book, Hidden Christmas, when he says, in every heart, then, there is a little King Herod that wants to rule and that is threatened by anything that may compromise its omnipotence and sovereignty. Each of us wants to be the captain of our own soul, the master of our own fate. There is a natural enmity of the human heart against all claims of sovereignty over it. It rises up a little when minor claims are made over us, but Jesus' claims of authority are ultimate and infinite. No heart unaided can gladly surrender to them. Yes, we all have a little bit of Herod in us that fights for control. So much of my own prayer time, I feel like, is me trying to get off the throne of my own life and put Jesus there in the place that he belongs. And when the Gospels and Jesus mention the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, they're not, ne- which same thing, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, same thing, but they're not necessarily meaning a literal place. They're meaning the reign of God. Wherever the kingdom of God is, God reigns on earth as it is in heaven. So this reign of God began when Jesus was born. It was inaugurated with the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it lives on and through us, his church, as we surrender to him. But just like Jesus and Herod were different leaders representing different kingdoms, and just like Christianity and Rome operated under different principles, the reign of Jesus in our lives will look different than the reign of those adhering to the values of this world. Why is this so important? Because obviously the world's way of ruling doesn't work. Violence, bloodshed, oppression are always used by groups to rise to power, but time and time again, Rome's continue to fall. But where worldly power seeks to overtake and destroy, our call is to love and redeem. Remember, for God so loved the world. Our job isn't to snuff out hate, violence, racism, and corruption with force, condemnation, and judgment. Our job is to create inclusive communities of belonging instead of exclusive communities of hate. To be a voice for the voiceless and advocate for the powerless, the oppressed, and the abandoned, not pretend they don't exist and walk by them on the other side of the road. Does that mean we stand up and push back on the evils of this world? Absolutely. Does that mean we could be persecuted for living like Christ? Yes. Is it going to be risky? You better believe it. But when we live grounded in the person of Jesus Christ, our weapons aren't the weapons of this world. Our weapons are love and joy and peace and sacrifice, living Christ-centered lives that lead us to other-centered lives. Paul has a term for this kind of living. 
He says, we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. Again, not a literal location, but the reign of Christ in and through his people. And when Christ reigns, no power can stop it. One of my favorite stories from the early church comes in Acts 5. The disciples, uh, specifically Peter and John in this story, um, have been going about preaching Jesus throughout anywhere they went. They were preaching Jesus. And the Jewish leaders were furious because they had worked hard to silence Jesus. They killed him. They wanted him off the scene, and they wanted his impact and influence over, just like previous rebellions. But these men were going out, they were preaching about Jesus, so they arrest them, but they get out, they keep preaching Jesus, they arrest them again, and now they tell them this. They say, we gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name, he said. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. When they heard this, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. Again, violence, right? But one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected, all the pe- respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the council chamber for a while. Then he said to his colleagues, men of Israel, take care what you are planning to do to these men. Some time ago, there was that fellow Thutis who pretended to be someone great. About 400 others joined him, but he was killed, and all his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too, and all his followers were scattered. So... My advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they are planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. Wise counsel, right? Now Gamaliel, to put him in place, is the one who taught Paul. So he kind of knew his stuff. Gamaliel basically says, all this stuff, this Jesus stuff, this has happened before, and all of it kind of petered out, pun intended. Um, But let's just see where this thing goes, right? Because if it's of man, it will die. If it's of God, you won't be able to stop it. So what happens is the others accept his advice. They call in the apostles and have them flogged. Then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And of course, Peter and John leave this place never again to speak in the name of Jesus because they were good rule followers. Two verses later, literally, it says, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they continue to teach and preach this message, Jesus is the Messiah. They couldn't help themselves because the message of God's love was too good to keep to themselves. The new, they knew the kingdom of God was the only power that could truly transform a person, that could truly change the world, and they had to share it with everyone that they came in contact with. The ways of the world empire simply don't work. As Martin Luther King Jr. once wrote, I've shared part of this quote before, but I want to read it in its entirety. He once said, I am convinced that love is the most durable power in the world. It is not an expression of impractical idealism, but of practical realism. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, love is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. To return hate for hate does nothing but intensify 
the existence of evil in the universe. Someone must have sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate and evil, and this can only be done through love. We must cut the chains of hate. That's why we can't return violence for violence, racism with racism. We can't fight hate with hate, darkness with darkness. We must push back with love. Jesus' kingdom of heaven cut off the chain of hate and evil with a love that was higher and wider and longer and deeper than anything else the world had ever known. And just like Gamaliel said, the message of Christianity has not been stopped in 2,000 years. It has continued to grow because it wasn't of man, it is of God. And here we are 2,000 years later and no one has been able to snuff out the message of the kingdom of God. But don't get too comfortable because people are still trying. In some places, it's, it's physical persecution. In other places, it's spiritual persecution. And in other places, Christianity is simply labeled as a religion for simple people. The devil still has his tools trying to snuff out the influence of Jesus. Our job is to not give in to the ways of the world, but surrender to Christ so he may reign. Our job is to continue the adventure started for us 2,000 years ago and to crown Christ as king today in our lives, in our homes, in our churches, in our world. And how did this adventure that Jesus started, um, how did it fare against the powerful Roman Empire? Let us look at one case study. Because Herod the Great wanted his legacy and impact to continue well after his death, he built a fortress called Herodium. Now, it's an archeological marvel. It's basically a man-made mountain. And I love the name Herodium. It's very creative. Um, I've been thinking that I wanna build a city before I die. I'm gonna call it Paticus. Been thinking about that for a while. But because of this tomb uh, that Herod built, this, this marvel, there are nearly 200 to 300,000 people a year that go and visit this tomb of Herod the Great to see his archaeological accomplishments. But just a few miles away from this, there's another site. This site has another figure. It's the tomb of someone else. This figure was born in a manger to a young couple from humble beginnings. And he grew up to be a preacher, a prophet, and a healer. His message was different than Herod's. Herod said, to get power, you have to take it. This guy said, to get power, you have to give it away. And every year, millions of people go to visit the tomb of this Jesus. The difference is, he's not there because he's not done with us yet. Jesus invites us today on our next great adventure. The question is, will we take the risk? Will we let him be the king of our hearts, the king of our homes, the king over all the places we inhabit? Will we lead with love? It'll be risky, but I guarantee you that Jesus is worth the risk. Would you pray with me? Jesus, it is mind-boggling to think about what you risked for us. You felt we were worth it. And we're told in places that even if you would have just saved one of us, you would have risked it all 
over again and again and again. And so Lord, here today in this room, maybe there are some people here that are like me that have to repent of all the times that we have dethroned you in our lives. We have tried to take over. We've tried to think that it's all up to us. Help us today have the courage to put you on the throne, to have you be the king of our lives, the king of this church, that we would lead and follow you and we would go from this place loving well because it is the only thing that will break the chains of hate. Lord, this movement of yours that keeps going, Lord, help us be a part of it. Help us have the courage to follow wherever you lead us and love well. Thank you for this Christmas story. May we continue to keep our eyes fixed on you and love well. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, I pray these things.